Today's scripture comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 4, verses 1 through 38. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who is named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these, I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision of the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reach, reaches to the heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, 
and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is, the, is it, it is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and it gives to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O King, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there perhaps may be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came to came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the time of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is, this, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of heaven and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was filled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his claws were like birds' claws. His nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand, or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and, all, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This is God's word. Thank you guys for reading that chapter for us. Invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, to keep them open to Daniel chapter 4 as we pray together this morning. Father, as we open these words from the book of Daniel this morning, we pray that you would be at work in our midst, that you would convict us of sin and cause us to long for mercy. And satisfy us this morning by reminding us anew that you are merciful toward us. Lord, we ask that you would be at work in us, that your spirit would do its work. We ask these things in the name of your son. Amen. Well, growing up in Colorado, as many of you know that I did, I got to spend a lot of time in the mountains, mostly at my grandparents' cabin. 
From the front door of that cabin, you could take a short walk up the hill across the road and in 20 minutes or so be above the 11,000-foot tree line. And from there, I had an unobstructed panoramic view of the valley and the winding river at the bottom and the massive never-summer mountain range on the western horizon which forms part of the Continental Divide. It was the sort of place that reminds you how small you really are. And because I got to spend so much time there as a kid, I developed some strong opinions about mountains. They were opinions that I was eager to share with everyone who would listen when I moved to Texas while I was in college. We would take skiing trips to New Mexico, or we would go hiking or camping there, and the whole time I would be telling my friends, you know, if you want to see real mountains, you just need to go a couple of hundred miles north. I was a real snob about mountains because I knew that northern Colorado was as good as it gets and everyone else was just trying to keep up. But then I went to British Columbia and I saw the Canadian Rockies for the first time. And as Jessica and I drove along windy mountain roads, I gained a whole new perspective on how massive and imposing and glorious mountains can truly be. There are moments in our lives or seasons of our lives that change our perspective or upend it completely. Sometimes it's over trivial things like realizing that there are bigger mountains in the world, but sometimes that realization has to do with the way that we understand the very most important things in life. You could probably think of examples of your own. Perhaps when you moved out of your parents' house and got your own place or when you became a parent or you endured the loss of a loved one or had some other significant change in the circumstances of your life. They are moments that pull back the curtain to reveal things that we could not see before, either because we hadn't had the chance or because we deliberately avoided looking. When we suddenly realize how small we really are, or how fleeting our time in this world really is, or how we are not actually in control of the things that we thought we were, there are moments that can be jarring and difficult because we realize things aren't what we thought they were, that the things we had put our trust in aren't as reliable as we thought they were. It is that realization that characterizes Daniel chapter 4, which we are looking at this morning. First and foremost for Nebuchadnezzar, who realizes that so much of what he has thought about himself and the world around him is wrong and also for the people of God who see in Nebuchadnezzar's story that much of what they believe about themselves and the world around them is just as wrong. This chapter is unique, not only within the book of Daniel, but within the Bible as a whole. It's written from the point of view of the Babylonian king we met back in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was responsible for the conquering of Judah the deportation of the people there, and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And here in the book of Daniel, which we've been studying through, we've seen him do some despicable things. Just last week, we read about how he built a statue of himself and commanded the nation to worship it. And when three young Jews refused, he attempted to have them burned alive. Under his rule, this Babylonian capital where he lives has become the largest city in the world. It had a massive palace, which Nebuchadnezzar himself had described as the seat of all royalty, the bond of the race of men, and the dwelling of all of humankind's joy and rejoicing. 
along with temples to various gods and the fabled hanging gardens, which became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, Babylon was a sight to behold. But the most impressive, or at least the most imposing thing that Nebuchadnezzar had had built were the massive city walls, which ancient historians reported were so massive that you could hold a chariot race on top of them. The city walls were massive because the city itself was so big. The walls were thick, and their construction had taken decades and involved millions and millions of bricks. And here's what's important. Every single one of those bricks, every single one of them was stamped with Nebuchadnezzar's name. He wanted to ensure that there was a lasting testimony to his supremacy in the world, and it did last Big sections of those city walls are still standing today, built with bricks that have Nebuchadnezzar's name on them. And that is why he musters all of his pride and declares in verse 30 of this passage we're looking at this morning that Babylon was a great city. And he says, it is a great city which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. To say that Nebuchadnezzar was proud of himself is a supreme understatement. He was entirely convinced of his own glory and absolutely certain that everyone else, even the gods themselves, were as pleased with him as he is with himself. Yet, at the opening of this chapter, he calls all the nations to listen to a story. Not a story about his glory, though, or the amazing things that he will be remembered for but a story about the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done. He exalts not the nation or the kingdom of Babylon with amazing feats of engineering in its magnificent capital city, but the everlasting kingdom of Judah's God whose dominion endures from generation to generation. Something at the very heart of Nebuchadnezzar has changed. His belief in his own glory and supremacy has crumbled, and the story that he's about to tell explains how that happened. It began with a dream. For the second time in this book, Nebuchadnezzar has had a disturbing vision, and he does not know what to make of it. So, just like before, he calls all of the most spiritual, most wise counselors to help him. The magicians and enchanters, the priests from various temples in the city, the astrologers, and generally the people that the Babylonian society turned to in such a situation. But just as before, they don't have a clue what to make of the dream. And then, as a last resort, Daniel is brought in to the king. Now, I'm not sure why he wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's first phone call. Since the last time this happened, Daniel was the only one who was able to help. Maybe things happen in this way just to underscore that it is Daniel's God who has sent this vision. So it will be Daniel's God, no one else, who appoints a man to interpret it for the king. And it will be Daniel's God who fulfills it. Regardless, Nebuchadnezzar seems to acknowledge some of this, though it may only be in hindsight. He refers to Daniel by his Hebrew name first and then explains that he was given the name Belteshazzar when he was brought as a captive from Judah. Belteshazzar is a name that honors one of the Babylonian gods. But it will not be one of those gods who gives the meaning to this dream or fulfills it. It will come through Daniel 
in whom Nebuchadnezzar explains is the spirit of the holy gods. He says this in verses 8 and 9. At this point, it's clear that Nebuchadnezzar does not understand everything. As he recounts this story of his life and this critical season of his life when all of his perspectives were upended, he does not understand everything, and we see that simply in the way that he describes Daniel. Even though he will share faith with Daniel by the end of these events, he is a new convert when he shares his testimony here. So he gets a few of the details wrong, and I resemble that and find some comfort in it. One of the bummers about becoming a pastor when I did uh, is that I was getting started right in the beginning of the digital age. So for better or worse, there are recordings that are easily accessible of all of my first sermons, and let me tell you, it is brutal trying to listen to them now. There are so many things that I would say differently, or perhaps not at all, that I hear coming out of my own mouth. But God is patient. He was patient with me then, just as He is patient with me now, and He was patient with Nebuchadnezzar when He says that the Spirit of the holy gods was in Daniel. The point that He's making here is that Daniel has some wisdom that no one else does, and that it has clearly been divinely imparted to him. So he explains the dream to Daniel in which there was a humongous tree whose top reached to the heavens and which bore much fruit and provided shade and shelter to countless creatures. But then a divine decree is issued. The tree is to be cut down. The branches are to be chopped off and the creatures that find shelter in this tree scattered. But the stump is to be left in the ground. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar may have had a guess what the tree represented. He probably guessed that the tree symbolizes the Babylonian Empire, which is home to countless people who will be scattered if this kingdom falls. But then, in verse 15, things take a much more personal turn. And this divine messenger in his dream says, Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed to that from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. So it's evident to Nebuchadnezzar, and already to Daniel, that the tree does not represent a kingdom, but an individual. And this, I think, is what has kept Nebuchadnezzar up at night. It's the reason that he has brought countless advisors and wise men to help him understand what is happening, and the reason he is pleading with Daniel now to help him understand it. Because up to this moment, the biggest problem that Nebuchadnezzar had was deciding how to spend his piles of gold, or where to build his newest palace, or where to send his army next. But now, with the arrival of this dream, that has changed, and he has a new biggest problem. He has begun to realize or begun to fear that perhaps he is not as powerful as he thought he was. I think it's also the reason that Daniel is hesitant, but that is one of the most interesting parts of this story to me, that Daniel is hesitant at all. He was dismayed by this dream when he hears Nebuchadnezzar describe it, and we read in verse 19 that for a while his thoughts alarmed him. Daniel wishes that it weren't true. And he says in verse 19, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. He knows right away 
that this dream spells disaster for Nebuchadnezzar, and he wishes that it weren't so, which is an unexpected way for, for Daniel to react. Nebuchadnezzar is the man, the one man who is responsible for the plundering of Daniel's home, the death of countless people, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and Daniel's own captivity and forced service in a land that is far from his home. Nebuchadnezzar is the man who, just last chapter, built a statue of himself and commanded everyone to worship it, and then tried to burn alive the people who refused. Daniel ought to hate this man. Shouldn't he be overjoyed to hear that God is finally going to answer the prideful, selfish warlord who has tried to rob God of his own glory and put so many people through such suffering? Shouldn't Daniel be overjoyed at that? But now, instead, on the brink of the king's downfall, Daniel is not jubilant. He is distraught. He takes no pleasure whatsoever in the fact that Nebuchadnezzar is about to be destroyed. In fact, when he explains the meaning of the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, that the tree is Nebuchadnezzar himself, that he will fall, that his kingdom will be ripped out of his hands, and that he will be made to live in the wild like an animal, he pleads with the king to change his ways, to repent of his wickedness, and then perhaps to be spared of God's judgment. He says in verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel knows that the heart of God is merciful and forgiving, that he desires contrite hearts and humility, and that his response is compassion and grace. Daniel knows these things. And even though this man has caused Daniel and his people an unimaginable pain, Daniel would rather see him turn from wickedness and receive mercy than to be annihilated for it. And in this way, I think, we see what Nebuchadnezzar meant when he said that Daniel had the Spirit of God in him. I think it's a reference not only to the fact that Daniel was able to interpret the dream, but to Daniel's own heart for this wicked king. Because rather than reveling in the destruction of his enemy, Daniel dreaded it. He sought another way. He wanted to see the king's heart change from pride to humility, reflected in the way that he treated the vulnerable and the weak so that God's wrath toward him might be averted. Daniel's example is a convicting one for us because it reminds us that God calls his people to love their adversaries, to pray for them, to seek their welfare, and even to implore them to repent so that they will receive mercy from God, even for sins that have been carried out against us. It reminds us that our desire ought to be for the forgiveness of our enemies, whoever they are, not for their destruction. It is a compassion that Christ himself embodied when he instructed his disciples to love their enemies and then carried out that instruction himself when he prayed for his executioners. Because in his heart, God delights to show mercy. He delights in it. Daniel understood that, so he did not rejoice to hear about this dream. He was sad about it. 
So he pleads with Nebuchadnezzar to turn from his pride, to humble himself and prove that change of heart in the way he treats people, especially the most vulnerable. Because otherwise, Daniel knows God will humble Nebuchadnezzar in spectacular and humiliating fashion. But the king is not convinced yet. He ignores Daniel. And Twelve months go by, which probably made him even more arrogant than he was before. Daniel's warning had gone unfulfilled for a year, and Nebuchadnezzar most likely forgot all about it, or if he did remember it, he was boasting about the fact that he was evidently invincible. But in verse 31, as he declares his own greatness, while the words were still in the king's mouth, we read, the dream becomes a reality. Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind. The man who considered himself above all the rest of humanity is suddenly cast into the wilderness as something more animal than man. Over the last couple of centuries, scholars have debated what sort of sudden onset mental crisis this actually is, and people have attempted to diagnose Nebuchadnezzar with one thing or another. But the text itself seems less interested in diagnosis and more interested in the fact that this is God's judgment against Nebuchadnezzar and that it is intended for a purpose, specifically that he will realize who really rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. He went from living in a palace to living in the wild, from eating the finest food to eating grass like an ox, from having the finest clothes to having long, matted hair and nails that are like claws. It is truly a humiliating fall from his place of honor, all so that God could reveal what Nebuchadnezzar had refused to see, that he was never as great or as powerful, or as glorious as he thought he was. And for seven periods of time, which most scholars interpret as seven years, he lived as a wild beast. Everyone who had seen him on his throne now saw him dressed in rags and living in a cave, and they probably laughed at him and felt better about themselves, as people often do when the rich and powerful fall from grace. But as in his dream, a stump, the stump of the tree, was allowed to remain. It was not uprooted completely. If God wanted to annihilate Nebuchadnezzar, he could have. But he did not want that. He wanted to reveal the truth to this proud man. And in verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar's eyes are finally opened. Having spent a lifetime looking down on everyone and everything, he finally lifts his eyes to heaven. And rather than declaring his own supremacy and everlasting glory, he blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion, Nebuchadnezzar says, is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. He does not claim glory. Instead, he says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. So does that mean that they're worthless? It means that next to God, they are as ants in terms of their glory. And God does according to his will, according to the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? It's amazing how much Nebuchadnezzar has changed when he comes back to his palace after seven years living in the wild. And while he is reinstalled as king, he puts his crown back on his head, his royal robes or whatever, and he sits on his throne again and his appearance is restored to what it was before. Outwardly, he is the same man that he's always been, but inwardly, 
something has changed completely. And in the last words we ever hear from Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. There are moments in our lives that change our perspective. They pull back the curtain to reveal things that we had not or would not see before. Some are more significant than others, but none are more significant than beholding the merciful heart of the keeper of the universe. I wish that these weren't the last words that we hear from Nebuchadnezzar in Scripture, because he probably had a lot to say after this. And we would love to know more about whether or not he became a committed believer if he began to implement any changes in the way that he ruled over the city of Babylon, the kingdom that he ruled over. But the records from this part of Babylonian history are incomplete, and he probably did not live for very much longer than this. In fact, by the very next chapter of the book of Daniel, there's another king reigning in Babylon. But Nebuchadnezzar's testimony here in chapter 4 is enough to declare some important things to God's people in every generation that will come after him. The first and most obvious one is that pride is a sin that God will not overlook. As Nebuchadnezzar considers his own life, as he looks back on these events from his life and the things that God has taught him along the way, this was probably right near the top of the list. He was well acquainted with the point that is made all over Scripture. Proverbs has a lot to say about pride, and in chapter 16, the author warns that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Those are words that Nebuchadnezzar certainly understood. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. God does not leave pride unanswered. He will not share His glory with usurpers. For much of his life, Nebuchadnezzar was literally at the top of the world. From his palace, he looked down from the, on the biggest city in the world, the capital of the wealthiest and most powerful empire in the world, and everywhere he looked, he saw his mighty works stamped with his name. And from those lofty heights, he had a long way to fall in order to become the humble person that we hear from in this chapter. So the author, so the author of Proverbs says it is better to be humble, to live in simplicity rather than a palace, because of the palaces of the proud, God will crumble. He will not suffer rivals. And hearing that, some people might say that God sounds like an egomaniac. He sounds awfully proud for someone who opposes the proud. But what we see in Nebuchadnezzar's story is that God's command to be humble comes from His love for us. It is a merciful call to see what we couldn't or wouldn't before. James chapter 4 says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What Nebuchadnezzar assumed was that from his throne he lacked for nothing and that he needed nothing. He did not long for the kindness of God because he did not long for anything at all. The proud person assumes that he needs nothing, least of all forgiveness and mercy and compassion. The humble person knows otherwise. The humble person knows his need. And before God, he knows that his need is mercy, something that we know God is delighted to give. What the proud person like Nebuchadnezzar could not see was that even though he lived in a palace, there was water rising around him and it was up to his neck. 
His sin was driving him further and further from God every day and amassing a debt that even his vast storehouses of gold would be unable to repay. God desires to lift him from the flood and to deliver him to safety, but Nebuchadnezzar never looked up to see the hands of his rescuer. Even after Daniel's warning, 12 months go by without even a hint of concern. So God, in his grace, cast him down from his palace so that the only place he had left to look was up. God's command for humility and the ways he brings it about in our lives is loving and merciful work. This is a comforting, if difficult, thing for us to learn and reflect on. Even though we may not be as obviously proud as Nebuchadnezzar was, we are prone to neglect how deeply and constantly we need the grace of God. When we forego prayer, we assume our ability is sufficient. When we forego the study of Scripture, we assume the sufficiency of our intellect and our wisdom. When we forego to gather with God's people, we assume that we are strong enough to get by without something that He has said is essential. And when we neglect the gospel, it is because we are not gripped every day by the sheer magnitude of our guilt before a holy God, forgiven by mercy that has been poured out for us at unimaginable cost. Often, God uses the bitter providences of our lives to reveal what we once neglected or couldn't see before. He upends our assumptions in such a way that all that is left to us is to look up and see the hands of our rescuer reaching down to lift us from the flood. Secondly, in the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar, God reveals his own supremacy. We are reminded multiple times in this chapter that the point of the vision and its fulfillment are so that everyone may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Even though Nebuchadnezzar appeared to hold all the power, his fall from the throne reveals that he was only the steward of an authority that, he was, that was really never his to begin with. God is the one who has raised up the Babylonians as the instrument of his justice against the wayward Israelites, and he is the one who set Nebuchadnezzar on the throne and brought him marching to Jerusalem. And just as easily, he sweeps him out of power and into the wilderness. God is the one with all authority and power. It is a hard-learned lesson that Nebuchadnezzar came to terms with during his years living in a cave rather than a palace, and it is a lesson that God intends all of his people to learn as well. From their point of view, living as captives in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar and his empire appeared unstoppable to the Israelites and without a rival in the world. When the Babylonian army arrived in Jerusalem, there was hardly a fight before the city fell. It was like a heavyweight boxer getting into the ring with my great-grandma. Nobody, by the way, <laughs> Jessica said I should say, it was like a heavyweight boxer getting into the ring with Pee Wee Herman, which maybe is better. The point is, nobody was betting against the Babylonians. Even though the siege of the city may have lasted quite a while, everyone knew how it would end. When they hauled away Daniel and the rest of the nobility into exile, it seemed like a darkness from which they would never, ever return. But God had promised that he would bring them out, after 70 years, 
And in the story of Nebuchadnezzar's fall, he is reminding his people that he is able to keep that promise. There is one ruler who is sovereign over this world, and it is not Nebuchadnezzar. This is good news for God's people. God's people then and God's people now, who are often tossed to and fro in this world, subject to the whims of powers that are beyond their control. And whether it is conquering kings or cancer which come into our lives, this chapter reminds us that whatever forces assault us and threaten us, they are not ultimately sovereign. God is able to keep His promises to us no matter how dark the path ahead seems to be to us. This is the reminder that Jesus gave to the disciples when He was preparing them to go and proclaim the message of the kingdom. He knew that they would encounter opposition along the way, just as He had. He knew that they would be threatened, just as He was. And He says to them in Matthew chapter 10, "'Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul.'" Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. God is the one who holds real power. He is the one who rules over the kingdoms of mankind and the flight of sparrows alike. And that is good news, Jesus explains in the next verse, because you are worth more than sparrows. Nebuchadnezzar's story illustrates something important and reassuring to us. Even the strongest, most unstoppable, most imposing, most deadly force that may ever come into our lives is still subject to His rule. It's important because it reminds us of who is sovereign, and it is reassuring because we know what sort of king He is. While Nebuchadnezzar had to be humbled, there is another greater king who did so voluntarily. Rather than being cast down, he stepped down. Rather than clinging to glory, he laid it aside so that he could serve and save the people of his kingdom. That is the amazing thing that Paul writes about in Philippians 2 when he's encouraging the Christians in the church there to be humble toward one another. They have the ultimate example to follow, he explains. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of, uh, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus not only humbled himself by changing his station, going from the throne of the universe to a life in poverty, but by becoming the ransom for his people and exchanging his life for theirs. It's an exchange that Nebuchadnezzar in his pride would never have considered or conceived of. And it is the lesson that God wanted to hammer home when he sent the dream of a tree and fulfilled it 12 months later. Nebuchadnezzar's persistent pride and the way he wielded his authority makes us long for a good king, one who lays down his life to save his people. We read his story, and it's easy to see his need to to recognize that this prideful man needed to be humbled, but it also reminds us of our own need, and it reminds us that we are lost if we refuse to look up. In the moment of honesty, 
when the curtain is pulled back, when we finally come to terms with what we couldn't or wouldn't see before, that our need is greater than we could ever possibly meet, He is there in glory, delighting to show us the mercy that we finally accept that we need. Hopefully, that is you this morning. Perhaps being reminded of these things and being stirred to worship. And perhaps you are considering these things for the first time in your life, that there is a holy God who desires to show you mercy because of His love for you, and that the only obstacle is whether or not you are too proud to look up. Let me tell you, alongside Nebuchadnezzar, that it is better to be made low so that the only way to look is up. Let us be humbled before God together, rejoicing even in the humbling because we know that it is an act of love worked by a God who delights to show us mercy. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful this morning for the book of Daniel and for the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. We know, Lord, that we are prideful, confident of our own strength, and that we often neglect our need of you. We pray, Lord, that you would be at work in us in mercy to draw us close and reveal what is true. We ask that you would write the hope of the gospel on our hearts, even if that requires us to feel the sting of being humbled. See us through it, Lord, and cause us to rejoice in your kindness toward us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.